Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, from 2018, A Certain Point of View. Creative non-fiction and the essay have been going from strength to strength in Aotearoa. Paula Morris is joined by Simon Wilson, Susanna Andrew and Shamabil Jakob to look at why. Kia ora koutou and welcome back. Just before we get started, I just wanted to do a, a call out to Gil Hanley, who is in our audience taking photographs today. She has been photographing the Going West Festival pretty much for the entirety, Gil, I think, 23 years. And uh, I really enjoyed reading about you today in the Herald. There's a wonderful article on the incredible work that Gil has done over the decades, documenting in particular uh, women's place and women's protest. And it's really lovely to have you here with us again, Gil. So welcome to our session from a certain point of view, e te tahi tihuhanga motuhaki. Uh, today we are talking about the essay, the rise and rise and rise of, and we have uh, four people on stage today, some essayists, some editors. Uh, today we will be hearing from Paula Morris, uh, herself a uh, novelist and essayist, and Simon Wilson, who's edited the Journal of Urgent Writing, Susanna Andrew, who has been the co-editor of uh, Tell You What over several years, and we also have Shamabel uh, Jacob, who is an economist and essayist and has several essays with the Bridget Williams Books Tech Series. So please join me in welcoming today to the stage Paula, Simon, Susanna and Shamabil. Everyone okay? You've all got your mics, Shamabil, make sure your mic is in the right place. We've had mic instruction backstage. We are already errant. No mai, hare mai. Kia ora koutou, I'm Paula Morris. Uh, I'm very happy to be chairing this session today on writing true stories and on the demands and possibilities of the essay form and of creative nonfiction generally at a time of such upheaval and transformation in the media and publishing landscape. Now, nonfiction, as you know, is a big house incorporating history, biography, and autobiography science, nature, and travel writing, the essay, the memoir. Uh, I talked here on Friday night, as some of you may remember, about creative nonfiction, um, the term popularized by Lee Gutkind, which means writing that uses the techniques and devices of fiction, like scene, character, point of view, setting, dialogue, to tell true stories. Now, these can encompass, of course, both the personal and the political. For example, the true crime investigation, the philosophical rumination, the addiction memoir, and the account of a journey which might be physical or emotional, or in the case of Eat, Pray, Love, both, <laughs> allegedly. Oh, terrible book. Now, <laughs> thinking about, it is, thinking about nonfiction, we can reach back in time to Montagna, to uh, Boswell, to Thoreau, we can think of the literary journalism of someone like Lillian Ross, the new journalism of Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion, uh, the non-fiction novel form championed by Truman Capote and In Cold Blood, 
Uh, closer to home, we can think about the documentary novels of Robin Hyde. And certainly some of our classics in New Zealand, I think, have been non-fiction. I'm thinking about Bill Pearson's essay, Fretful Sleepers, or um, Janet Frame's three volumes of autobiography. And today, many of our great contemporary practitioners of, of creative nonfiction are writing both short and long form. And some names I just scribbled down, Fiona Farrell, Nick Lowe, Steve Braunius, Ashley Young, Martin Edmund, Dinah Wishtel, and Peter Wells, just off the top of my head. Now, to discuss the form and its possibilities today, I'm joined here by economist and author, Shamobil Ekub. No, Yakub. I had it right backstage. <laughs> So thrown off. Journalist and editor Simon Wilson and editor and anthologist Susanna Andrew, all distinguished, all opinionated, and all very good nonfiction writers. And please welcome them once again to Going West. <laughs> Look how lovely they are. <laughs> I wanted to begin uh, just uh, referring again to that Bill Pearson essay, Fretful Sleepers, which was published in Landfall in 1952. Now, Landfall, that august journal, is still going. But in that time, a number of New Zealand newspapers have closed or, as we were discussing backstage, diminished in some way. Uh, but where print opportunities have been reduced, online opportunities have increased. So places like Itangata, the spin-off, the Pantograph Punch. And I wondered what our panel thought about if this was good news or not, and what implications it has for writing and editing. Uh, Susanna, you were talking about this a little bit backstage, so I think you should begin. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just a plethora of, the, of, of pieces to access now online. This was the genesis for um, Tell You What. It was to collect things that we found. Um, do you remember the days when you used to bookmark things? People would send you something and there was a bookmark on your computer, but... And, and now, does anyone use the bookmark yeah. function? Yeah. Do you still? Okay. <laughs> not really, no. Oh, we're not meant to. <laughs> no. Um, I just found that I bookmarked everything and I couldn't ever, there was no system to that. So, yeah. Um, but I'm not actually answering your question, though. I'm, the, the question being that actually what happens online is that there is no, con, there's no holding pen to these pieces. They just unspool. And, you know, because you've got this length that you can go on and on, Often people do. How would you feel about that, Simon? Um, that is something that's true about the internet, but the internet, I find often many of the best things I read on the internet have also been published in hard copy in a magazine or a book. Um, so really? the internet is a companion. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking, if you think about, say, a magazine like The Atlantic, um, which contains um, right, Ta-Nehisi yeah. Coates' work, you know, <laughs> yes. that kind of thing. And if you think of, say, the London Review of Books, which I know you're a great fan of, the London Review of Books recently published an essay by Andrew O'Hagan about the Grenfell Towers disaster. It's only 60,000 words long <laughs> because it's the whole magazine. So you get the magazine uh, and, and that's the whole thing. But it's also online, so you can come and go. And the online version has the added attraction of having some interviews, some video, more images than they put in the, in the, in the magazine itself. It's actually an enhanced version of the story in, in all those ways. But, but you've made an in interesting point that, in actual fact, because it was already published in hard form, it had its limitation before it went online. If, if something was it, going to be published it, 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 online, it, it, there is no it has constraint. Been, well, that's just a function of where you might publish online. It's not necessarily a function of, of online publishing. There can be editorial controls in, in the 
in the, on the internet. That, that can happen. Can we talk about the New Zealand context, though? Because, of, I mean, often when we talk about creative non-fiction, we end up talking about the New Yorker or Atlantic or Harper's. We talk about overseas. But in our context now, where we are really constrained with newspapers, are we not? I, um, in the last three years, I've worked as a... Um, an editor and writer for a magazine, which was Metro, and I've worked for the spin-off uh, as a writer um, and a, an editor of a section of it. Uh, and now I'm a senior writer at the Herald, um, and I essentially have a, a, a role that, uh, if people were here yesterday and heard Toby Manheim speaking about comment is, is free at The Guardian, a role very like the one he described for people like Polly Toynbee. I'm required to write a, an opinion piece at least once a week. I am also, I also have the opportunity to write long-form features. Um, if I use the word essay to the Herald editors, they kind of start rolling their eyes, you know, a little bit. it sounds like so, homework. So I don't use the word essay. I just say I'm going to have this long-form piece. Um, and I also do some news coverage and so on as well. Um, it actually isn't any more edited than anything I ever did at the spin-off um, in that the processes in all media now in this country do tend to be, if you've written it and you've got your spelling right and all of that, it'll get published the way it is. Um, so there isn't that kind of scrupulous control that there used to be, right. um, which but is a great shame. Word limit. Yeah. Um, well, the irony of it is that when I write longer than they've got space for in the newspaper, they say to me, you can put the long form on the internet. Um, and of course, a few years ago, everyone thought no one would read anything long on the internet, but it's actually the reverse. Um, so um, I always try and battle against that and say, let's get the best version. And I always tell people that the shorter version is the better version always <laughs> of anything. Um, but you can't, there is that capacity to have the longer version up there if the writer really wants it. Mm. Can we talk about publishing as well? Because I've got here, I don't know if you can see it, this is a Bridget Williams Books uh, essay, a Shamobile's essay. This is Generation Rent, Rethinking New Zealand's Priorities. And up here we've got Tell You What, which three, ver three years of it, Susanna, you guys did for AUP. Uh, the Journal of Urgent Writing, which is published by Mass University Press now in its second year. Simon uh, edited the most recent one. I'm glad that the organisers put up the first one because I have something in there. So. <laughs> the first one's pretty good, but the second one, this is the one. <laughs> really disrespectful. And then my book, False River, which has got short stories and non-fiction, and, and I have to say has got the widest coverage of anything I've ever written or published, I think, because there's non-fiction in it. But Shamabil, let's talk about you being published by Bridget Williams Books um, because this imprint is offering readers a chance to engage with a, a variety of quite serious and weighty topics, but in essay form. Um, so what were your goals in writing a book like this and what kind of audience did you think you would reach? So that was uh, my second text with PWB. The first one was um, where I got disinvited from Wanganui. <laughs> I called him a zombie town. You only do that once. Um, but um, I was telling Simon uh, backstage that the genesis of that first book was I had done a presentation essentially for Stephen Joyce um, describing what was going on with the regions and why it's important for government to be involved to at least try something. And I happened to be talking to Tom Rennie, who was the publisher of BW Takes at the time, and he said, oh, why don't you just turn it into a writing? And it was essentially an extended version of a presentation. It wasn't even an essay, right? So it went from a set of pictures to an essay. And then Generation Rent, uh, I co-authored with my wife, Selena. And the two of them had, I think, very similar kind of um, aims. It was very much to take the economics out of a very economic subject. 
So it was meant to be a mainstream conversation about issues that matter to New Zealanders, even though a lot of the frameworks, the thinking, the analysis that underpins it is the work that I've done as an economist and Selena and I had done as economists. But the writing had to be very much about a little bit of the technicality, yes, there's mm -hmm. some of it, but not very much. Most of it is about, I think, engaging with people on a human level. And I found that process to be quite um, difficult because I'm used to writing for experts, I'm used to writing for other geeks, and it's much easier to write long, turgid stuff than to write short, easy-to-read stuff. Um, so the texts were really quite important in terms of essentially creating a mainstream conversation. But I had very big ambitions for these things. It was all about changing the needle on public conversation. And the texts have done an amazing job in terms of, I think, really being quite instrumental in creating lots of different conversations. Certainly with Generation Rent, I'm extremely proud of the contribution it's made in terms of the impact that we've seen. So this current government has pretty much taken all the policies that we had in our book and is trying to make them real. I, I'd call that a win. Mm. The power of the essay. Very good. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of things that come off this. Firstly, I mean, I am someone who would never buy a book about economics, but I bought this. And I will read it, and then I'll pass it on to my nephew, who's a young lawyer and very interested in social policy. I'll pass it on to my brother, who's obsessed with uh, deleveraging his mortgage, uh, like many Aucklanders. And it's the kind of thing that does become part of a conversation. And Susanna was comparing this form of book, the, the essay and book form, with the original Penguin paperback. Would you talk about that, uh, Yeah, it's, well, I mean, actually, what's different about these, though, is that I'm, I'm so surprised how successful they are because they look like homework. That looks like something you'd be given at school in terms of its production values, don't you think? I mean, they're not, they're not attractive. There's no picture. There's no art form on it. And what do we read for? Do we read for information or do we read for art? Do we... I mean, and generally in this discussion about non-fiction and its incredible kind of rise mm -hmm. as a, and, and popularity, as and Unity will attest to, is that, you know, people are attracted to subjects to read in in which they never normally would um, because of the style and because of the quality of the prose. You know, you will read about an octopus. You know, we will sell, you know or, you know, any of these subjects which we don't normally go to, and they are marketed beautifully, whereas that one is not. That one says, this is just going to give you some information, but actually inside it, it's I think, not. Yeah, I yeah. think to be fair to BWB, they do put the effort in, in the editing to Oh, you know, not, no, I'm reads, saying they so, are great, yeah. but look at that as a presentation, as, oh, a, I know what you're saying. as a thing, yeah. as a, in, in, you know... As a thing, that's a that's there's been a, a thing. designer. <laughs> yes, a designer was at work. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. But yeah. in a way, these have got the the same interchangeable designs. So you see BWB text, you'll see a stack of them there, and the idea I think is saying, well, if you liked one of them, you know, you'll like think, them all because yeah. they're all really brainy, which is and exact, thoughtful and provocative. Which is exactly mine. the experience that we've had. Is if somebody's read one of my books, they might go off and read somebody else's because they go, well, it's probably going to be similar in terms of style and digestibility. But also the thing that was quite interesting for me is the range. You're absolutely right in that there is a lot of school kids who read this stuff. So BWB text in schools is quite a big thing. Yeah. And so when you go to talk to librarians, they're actually lending a lot of these books out because they're small, they're interesting, and the kids are smart. They get the stuff. 
But I've also gone to, you know, essentially retirement villages mm -hmm. where people have read these books as well. So you're spanning the whole kind of range. Yeah. And I've been to parliament where I've seen this on top of senior ministers' offices, <laughs> or desks, yeah. right? Because it's much easier than the cabinet papers that they read. <laughs> One crucial thing that we're talking about in all this is access, isn't it? Because before you would have given that presentation to a minister, it might have existed in some form as a, as a dry report or something you could find as a PDF on a ministry's website. But now it's taking those conversations and directing them into the hands of the public. There is something about a book, though. There is mm. certain gravitas to a book that a PDF doesn't have, mm. right? There is there's no tangibility. It almost feels like, you know, that internet thing that Susanna was talking about. It, it can go either way. And Simon's right in that there is some great quality stuff, but also there is just tons and tons of drivel. Mm. But that's, that's true. You know, everywhere. That's true everywhere. That's true in Dare books. I say it, in a bookshop. <laughs> you know, you're not going to read most of the books in that shop, but you're going to find real gold if you look carefully and, you know, if you're lucky and all of that. I know, but there is more, there's yeah, more there's money so at stake in the printed book and That's therefore right. there are more editorial there decisions. Is oh, and it's highest. more filtered. It's, yeah. I think the, the larger point Susanna was making is really important, that the process of um, treating essays, treating non-fiction information uh, putting it through the filter of art, mm. making the form work really well, working it up so it is as entertaining and driven as a piece of writing so you will, the reader will keep going and be so rewarded by the experience of it. I think all of those things, you know, I think it's fantastic that, as it happens, we're living in a time when those things are being applied to non-fiction writing, mm. about, often about things that really matter and very often about things that are just a lot of fun mm. um, or... or matter in different sorts of ways, but we do live in an age when, where those things are happening because people want to read them. Ed, yeah, I, I was thinking um, Zadie Smith's new collection of non-fiction and mm. her introduction she talks about, um, she, she has an anxiety about being qualified to write as a non-fiction writer, which is, which is sort of um, possibly how a non-fiction writer might feel about feeling qualified to write as a fiction writer. I mean, she was looking at those two roles, but she was saying all she's really doing, and I think a lot of people on the internet are doing, is just sort of saying, I feel this. Do you? Do you feel this? You know, following thoughts, which is the Montaigne sort of mm. origin of the essay, I suppose. Um, and... And and that's a different way to which like to to, to the to the nonfiction that we've been used to, in which we have listened to an authority on a subject. Yeah, and except, it's except, sorry, just want to butt in, Simon, because this affects you. Um, journalism is not about being expert. Journalism is about being curious. Yes. You don't have to be an expert. But you and don't have to uh, feed journalism is also about filtering and assessing experts mm. and, and, and doing all of that. I had a. Um, I'm sure many of you know I, had, I wrote about having prostate cancer earlier this year, and, and, and in the sense that you were just talking about with Stadie Smith, it was a very similar experience. I haven't really talked about this uh, since I wrote it, but when I was diagnosed, I knew straight away I would want to write about it, and people, all sorts of people tried to tell me, don't do it, um, but I did, and I'm really pleased I did, and since I did, I've found it really hard to write anything else about it, I must say. It's like this whole thing came out of me and got done in that way. Um, but I think of that as, a, as an essay. It was broken up into five or six parts, but I do think of that as an essay. And, you know, when, when something like that happens to you, you're meant to read heaps about it. I read very little about cancer and prostate cancer um, during that whole process and still have read relatively little, yeah, but I read Christopher Hitchens, and I read Jenny Diskey, I read 
real writers mm -hmm. dealing with similar things, yeah, and dealing with it in much more tragic situations than I've yet had mm -hmm. to experience. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I found that enormously uh, rewarding as a process um, and, and, and affirming to me as a writer. And this raises the issue that's in the title of our discussion, which is point of view, because there is something in creative nonfiction beyond the apparent objectivity of journalism. So how do we work with the subjective I without the work becoming solipsistic or self-indulgent? I mean, did you, I mean, it's interesting yeah. you talk about Zadie Smith saying, I feel this, do you feel this too? I have to say, I would rather read John McPhee writing about geology, something I know nothing about, because I know he's going to make a really good story of it, rather than endlessly read about other people's feelings. But I know that the, the form of creative nonfiction is so massive and all-encompassing, it can, can include a huge amount on that spectrum. Uh, can I ask you about one of your pieces in False River, yeah. which you um, published first as a fiction piece and then as a non-fiction piece? Mm -hmm. Can you, can you talk about, about that? Oh, so Great Long Story, maybe? So Great Long Story is uh, the account of um, me going to the grave of Robert Johnson in Mississippi and being stung in the neck by a bee. It is a true story. And, in fact, it, to me, it only works as a true story because otherwise it's way too convenient. <laughs> you know, in fiction, there are different rules. We don't accept coincidence in fiction no. the way we do in nonfiction. We just don't, and because I don't want to spoil the essay for you, because it is a work of genius. But uh, but I'll do it. I'll spoil it. <laughs> but one of the things I'm kind of playing around with the form of a blues song and what's known and what isn't known about Robert Johnson. Every possible story about his life is where he's buried. It's not really clear. Is that his grave or is this his grave? But the woman who he was having an affair with when he died, who might have been the one to poison him. Or it might have been her husband who was the one to poison him. Her name was B. So the fact that I got stung in the neck by B, it's like, okay, I have to write about this. So as you get something like, well, I have to write about this. Now, as fiction to me, it seems enormously contrived. It only works if it's actually true. But I did pass it off as a short story because obviously I'm a liar as a fiction writer. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a that's, story. That's Susanna's question. Why did you pass it off as a short story um, because first. to get into an anthology okay. yeah right. um yeah <laughs> sorry yeah i just do you have anything yes <laughs> i do um it was black marks on the white page which actually mm. having said that they were very loose with their notion of fiction there's there's some people who are really poets just pretending to be fiction but, writers you know, i'm not sure why you would say that reading john mcphee is going to be intrinsically more valuable than reading zadie smith because he writes about other things and she writes about no because i think he's a really good writer he's a really good writer there are lots of really boring writers about <laughs> oranges or ge geology or whatever it is mm. that he writes about and there are lots of really great writers doing what zadie smith does oh, is it the subject i don't think they correlate you know that i don't think the form correlates to that there are good writers but, uh, yeah there are there are good writers in, and that's one of the things that actually creative nonfiction and its accessibility through the internet is kind of blurred where people think i can publish myself very easily all of you can go home today and publish yourselves can't you yeah. you can set up a blog in about five minutes. But then, as Susanna knows, at the university, I'm, I'm constantly saying to people, I don't want to read your blog posts. I want to read a really shaped, interesting piece that includes knowledge and insight and interrogation and hopefully, for the purposes of my class, written in scene with characters and dialogue. Like, how can you demonstrate the skills rather than just saying, I feel this, wah, you know? Or... 
rather than just saying I've got this really important topic, I, I think I've said to you before, Paula, that I used to have a great deal of trouble as an editor when writers would say to me, I want to write a piece about this important subject, and I'd go, well, um, it might work, it might be good, but I don't know, because I never as an editor thought we've got to have stories on this or that or the other, or very rarely. You, what you're thinking is you've got to have good pieces, you've got to have really good pieces of writing. And that's the that's the wonderful thing about magazines with long-form writing in them that you can trust is that you know that you can start reading a writer you like or, or a, um, in a magazine you really like and you know that even though you didn't think you cared at all about geology, this is going to be fascinating. Yeah. Susanna, where, when you were looking for pieces to publish and tell you what, where did you find them? Twitter. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> They're a um, really, really short piece. <laughs> um, Not much of a book, really. <laughs> no, I mean the the you know the sharing of like people sort of posting and saying, "Have you read this?" Which is which is a fantastic way to find you know find anything. Um, gosh, I mean. The first, the, the, the instance of, of, of Tell You What came out of the Christchurch earthquake because people were writing extraordinary pieces about that experience and, and, and putting them up. Um, and I remember that, that same year, Eleanor Catton read, read that, wrote that beautiful essay which was published in The Guardian after she won the Booker Prize, which, you know, would have disappeared. I mean, you could all go and find it now, you know, but it's nice to have it in a book. Um, where do I look? They're just everywhere. The world is a wide, wide place. But um, I don't, I mean, I'm not, we don't edit for that. I mean, Simon's doing a completely different thing with this and the same with the BWB books. They're all commissioned. These pieces are found pieces. Mm. Um, they also come out of, uh, the other model was um, the book of non-required reading, which is published by McSweeney's, which published speeches as well as um, a whole range of different forms of non-fiction. And I didn't make it on Friday night, but Paula's, you know, something like a, a speech in which some, a writer has prepared something and, and spoken to a, a small group of privileged people who managed to get here. And it, I like the idea that you can take these pieces and give them another another mm -hmm. place. So, yeah, we, we, you know, the Margaret Mahi lecture, some of the lectures that are given every year, those sort of things, it's a holding place for that. And, um, I mean, we live in the era now of podcasts and TED Talks. Yeah. And, I mean, I was speaking to Caroline Barron this morning, uh, another writer, she drove here. She was listening to a podcast where two people were discussing a really interesting topic. And, and it's there are many ways now we can access things. Do you give podcasts? Do you do no, podcasts? I hate them. Why? I think they're horrible. Why? <laughs> Why? I like to listen to music. I don't like to yeah. people talking, talking. You know, I, I love to listen to music. To me, that's the best thing about the car. I can turn <laughs> up my music. I can listen to it. There, is, there are no kids to annoy me. I've got two savages, so, you know, it's really important. Um, no, I don't like people yapping, yapping right. on while I'm, you know. I don't know how, I don't whether a to. podcast would, would, would um, you know, transcribe. I mean, Guy and Espiner's 13th Floor, that was brilliant. That was a piece of... That was a podcast initially, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yes. Yeah, and that, that worked because it was kind of very... But I like the book better. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But that's just me, right? That's just my biases coming through. I like to read it and highlight things because I'm not a particular listening type of person. Right. Because I was at the Hauraki Golf Forum at Auckland Museum on Wednesday, which was really interesting. Everyone had to give 18-minute talks, which is based on the TED Talk. And so there were all sorts of people there, from people like me, writer, to visual artists, to scientists. And 
because we were all forced to condense, kind of like your books with Bridget Williams' books, you're forced to condense quite a lot of brainy stuff into 18 minutes and a bit of a PowerPoint. It was very, very accessible and gripping. I found the day fascinating. Well, I find the same with writing the weekly column mm -hmm. because you've got a 600-word limit. You have to squeeze everything into this kind of little shape, and that forces you to edit, edit, edit because... 600 words is actually not that much, not much. Mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to write about the kinds of things I like to write about, which is more economics kind of things. There's always stuff you have to introduce, stuff you have to explain, and then kind of go, so what do you do with it? You know, the so what of it. Mm -hmm. So all of this takes space, but yeah, you're trying to squeeze everything in. And I'm not saying every column is great, but I mean, it's incredible how much reach they have mm -hmm. because, you know, I go and talk to general people, but more often than not, the invitations I get from policymakers who go, oh, we read that piece can we talk a bit more about what is the policy solution to this particular problem you're talking about? So in some ways, I think this kind of this, this, this slightly more creative writing with nonfiction ideas is more as an intro, more as a taster, right. but there, it, it has this a possibility of a much wider, much deeper engagement, not with everyone, because not everybody wants that, but for those who are interested. The flip side is, as a professional, when I'm a consultant, I'm only dealing with the experts, only dealing with the turgid stuff, only with the detail. You miss that wider public engagement. And I want to mention this before. I think this is why there is so much interest. We trusted government to just do stuff. But now government doesn't do anything because they do politics by polling. So the public has to be interested and informed. And unless the public wants to ban plastic bags or improve the quality of water, the government is not going to do anything. So no amount of shouting at the experts or experts talking amongst themselves is enough. That's, that, that's really true, isn't it? That, mm. that the flips, the, the, it's terrible to have a government driven only by polling, but the good sign of it is they're open for business. Totally. We can and, influence them. And, you know, I think that this is exactly right. I think that is the role of this non-fiction coming into the, you know, the prominence in public space. It helps motivate people to ask for change. And that's fantastic because it means that we can actually shape the conversations. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot more, I think, urgency to do that because it feels like what you write, what you do, has some impact. And, you know, uh, I, I think Rachel's in the, in the audience and the stuff she's been writing about water quality and farming has been extraordinarily important. Mm -hmm. And, hell, we, public has moved from going, you know, it's something that's somebody else's problem to this is New Zealand's problem. Fantastic stuff. So when you're writing, are you aware of persuasiveness when you're in... in you know, to be perfectly honest, when well, I'm writing like on Tuesday night to deliver on <laughs> Wednesday morning, so, so you're really, really struggling to be, I think, as considered as you'd like to be. But the, the constraint, I think, forces you to boil everything down to its essence, mm -hmm. and that helps. But I also find that the pieces that get the most kind of readership are the ones that have a little bit more prose, that have a little bit more flow, that's a little bit more artistic. Style. The, yeah. the style really matters because it's nice to read. And, you know, I write in the Sunday Star Times, so it's kind of like it's your weekend brunch paper. And I don't know who reads it, but, you know, circulation numbers don't look great. Um, Aucklanders read it because they're enraged with the Sunday Herald. <laughs> Yes. But it, but it feels like the creativity, that creative part, when you can get there, is far more rewarding for the readers. Mm -hmm. That's when I get the more most abuse. Oh really? 
I block, I block everybody, so it's okay. He'll <laughs> <laughs> be blocking us this afternoon. I didn't get to put in my John McPhee quote on Friday, so I'm going to put it in here. He talks about the difference between a non-fiction writer and a fiction writer. A fiction writer, he says, you get to feel your way, where a, a non-fiction writer is dealing with actual material. And he said, you're, what you're trying to do is tell it as a story in a way that doesn't violate fact, but at the same time is structured and presented in a way that makes it interesting to read. And Lillian Ross, another writer associated with The New Yorker, who I, I really love her work, she talks about the joy of finding or even inventing new ways to tell a story. And it seems to me that's what creative nonfiction offers you now. It's not just, I'm going to present this information to you, but I'm going to tell you a story and make it very compelling. I think there's a, a couple of things in that, which, um, which I tell students when, when mm -hmm. I do talks. And, and one of them is all writing has to be as... as dramatically interesting as it can be. Um, if it w I, I tell people if it will work on television where you have to be able to speak really concisely and clearly and lead people along, it'll work on the printed page. If it, if it sounds great, uh, it will read well. Um, and using the principles of how you write fiction to write non-fiction is, is so important in that. Mm -hmm. you know, and so actually relatively few non-fiction writers really grasp that. They think the ideas are more important, but the form... The ideas are useless if the form doesn't work. The form I think, isn't good enough. Yeah, there's a great Vivian Gornick yeah. quote. She came out to the festival a couple of years ago and she said, um, you know, there has to be an organising principle, which is what you talk about, you know, for non-fiction. Anything else is just testament. You know, you just testify and you've yeah. got to actually... And there's yeah. also the, the, that point of, of, of finding the fresh and new way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a lot of... One of the ironies of, of the time we live in is that while media organisations are collapsing, there are a lot of good journalists writing a lot of good writing. You can find a lot of good travel writing in, the, in those travel supplements in the newspapers, but it all tends to be the same, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there's a formula to doing it, and there's a way to start with your fascinating anecdote and move on from there, and, and so on. And it is actually hard to break out of that, but it's really important to, 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 as a writer, to say what's the way in which this would normally be told, and then find something else to do. You know, it, it gets harder all the time the more you do it, you know, but it is as important as it ever was. Can I just can I just jump in with one comment? It's funny because you know when you when you come from a technical background, so as an economist, we were never taught how to write creative stuff, right? And in fact, when you're writing essays at uni, you want it to be as technical and as jingo, you know as jingoistic as possible. So quite problematic in that coming from that background to then try and participate in this world where the three of you are the more creative types, right? So how do you compete for column space yeah. and people's interest? when you bring a certain point of view, which is a supposedly an expert point of view. But in many ways, you know, no training in writing. But that's why we need to have more training in writing at universities. And American universities, as many of you know, almost all first-year students go through composition classes, no matter what subject they're taking. I really am a big advocate for it here. We need it across the board in all subjects, because you're going to have to write whatever job you're doing. Absolutely correct. And it's not just for the writing, but it's also for the communication more generally. Yes. So I find a lot of my work, it doesn't matter how good the quality of analysis is, if the communication is not amazing at the end of it, there is very little value and very little cut-through. Lots of academics cannot write. They cannot write clearly. And that means that mm -hmm. their work can't have the impact beyond academia because they can't communicate. And I th that's one of my frustrations is if you look across our academia, there are some amazing people but they're not engaged in the public space because they can't write to you as human beings, right? They're writing as experts who are writing for other experts. So they're stuck in this little bubble. And I just want to throw that in as, you know, this is a big 
barrier for non, a lot of the non-fiction stuff coming out into a much bigger way. It, it's, it's not just that they're writing for experts, they're writing for points. Yes. <laughs> even, even when they're not writing academically, you're not writing for an academic journal, they, are, they still, in my experience, having been an editor for years, as the overwhelming majority of academics can't stop themselves thinking in terms of how do you do this in a way that will be conducive to footnotes, even if they don't have them, and, and so on and so on. And so on. It's, it's, it is so. And you know, to my mind, there are very valuable contributions in in the Journal of Urgent Writing from academics. Uh, but as a guiding principle, the freshest writing and the vigorous thinking tends to come from the non-academics. And I would encourage you all, if you are not exploring the, the, the various books that are available here on sale, but also um, Itangata, which publishes on a Sunday, yeah. three new pieces, often from emerging writers. Um, one writer, Nadine Huda, who writes for the spin-off, and Itangata is writing fantastic essays, really, really great pieces. And that's the way she is entering New Zealand literature. So I wonder if it is opening up entry points. I, th I think that the problem we've got with that is that the entry points are there, uh, spin-off is one of many, um, but the development isn't there. If you think about radio um, in this city, certainly for decades now, people who were, young people who wanted to get into radio went through BFM uh, and then went out into the wider radio system and became the stars, for better or worse, that, that we have today. It's a fantastic breeding ground. It always has been, uh, and it's worked in that way. That doesn't happen, uh, by and large, in in non-fiction writing. Mm -hmm. So people can go to the spin-off, but nobody, like where I work, is looking at the spin-off and going, what do we need to do to get her uh, on our staff writing for us with the much bigger audience? That, that process isn't happening, uh, and it is a great shame. Susanna, what do you think about um, encouraging new talent and, and drawing them along to the next step? I mean, you've, you've taken some quite new writers and publish them and tell you what, what would you say to them if they asked you what would be their next step? Uh, in terms of publishing again, in terms of keeping on, um, to keep, to, 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 to keep publishing. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, the, the Simon is right about there not being enough of that mentoring or you know that the work to get something into its best possible shape. And with the, with tell you what we wanted to, to to republish, but actually there were some pieces that we that hadn't gone through that system that we did kind of tidy up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, what would I say to those writers just to just to keep to mm. to find the, the the outlets into? But I mean. Interesting. I don't know about the personal blog. I think that that's. I wonder whether that's over a little bit. I mean, we, you know, now with with art, where there are so many sort of platforms that hold that. I don't know whether the personal blog has as much value. Mm -hmm. Depends. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'd go back to what I said before. I don't think there's any one form that no, is necessarily true. going to be a, a bad place to go. And yeah. you know, writers have to keep writing. You, you have a writer is someone who writes not thinks about it and all of that. And mm. uh, if the only art that you can find to start with or, or um, at, at a particular period is a personal blog, well, um, okay, you know, mm. at least you're still doing it. And 
if you're yeah. good enough, it'll lead to something else. I just yeah. really encourage mm-hmm. people who, who come into my orbit to really work on the skills of mm-hmm. writing, communicating. Mm-hmm. Well, I teach uh, creative nonfiction at stage three at the University of Auckland. A lot of people just take it as a one-off class. Susanna's in my class this semester. She's often late to class, I'm sorry to tell you. But she's shocked. I know, I'm I know shocked. Susanna I was so shocked. Well, I'm I'm I shocked. Said to them, Susanna's always going to be late. But one thing I really encourage them is to realise that the people in their essays are characters to the reader. We don't know them. So if they say, my husband, we're like, well, who's he? And what's he look like? And what's he got to say for himself? That they have to realise that the skills of fiction are very important in writing stylish, persuasive stories. Having said that, there's something you said in your opening lecture on Friday night where you said, we don't start with the idea, which I understood what you were saying in almost every respect, except I was thinking, Catch-22? Does that start? But... In but, essays, but, yeah, it in might, es- but, yeah, yeah, you yeah, might have yeah, a premise, but he's got to have a character does, before he's he got does. a book. But in essays, essays can work and often do work just with the idea. There's, my favourite essay in, in the Journal of Urgent Writing is by Emma Espiner, uh, where she posits what would happen if we took Parliament and put it on the Marae. Mm-hmm. And what she's really saying is what would happen if to Al Māori, the principles that govern to Al Māori and by which people have a civil discourse with each other and can get as angry as they want and all the rest of it. Now, what would happen if we took those principles and those customs and those rituals and required our politicians to abide by them? And then what would happen if we took other parts of society and did the same? And she's an idea piece. That's a question piece. She's asking okay, a question. Yes. What if? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and and her and uh, as she explores it, it is so persuasive. It is so mm-hmm. wonderful. She paints a picture of a country that might be that actually we could be. And I, I, I think that to me is a thrilling use of anything. Yeah. And I'd really and encourage you to explore uh, the Journal of Urgent Writing because it does have a real range of approaches to writing nonfiction. And then mm-hmm. I mean, we have such a range of talent and questions and curiosity and writing styles and just knowledge rather than just information as well. Knowledge and insight. I really encourage you all to engage with it, whether it's online or in books. Now, um, before we finish, is there a, a particular non-fiction writer or book or whoever that you would just like to recommend to, to the, to the um, audience here? Shamabila, is there someone you'd like to recommend? No, not really. I think um, for me... Because I'm so time poor at the moment, I do rely on the BW text a lot. So they have a subscription model, so it just turns up in my inbox, in my mailbox, which is great. So I read them when I travel. So I usually read them on the plane and so leave them behind. you get the e-books or you get the physical books? I get books. the physical books because I read them on the plane and then leave them behind for the next reader, next traveller. Oh, nice. Um, the person I think I'd recommend is Caitlin Flanagan. Uh, she writes for The Atlantic. Uh, she is, a, in most respects, a conservative feminist. Um, so she and I don't have the same worldview in many respects, but I find her a wonderfully engaging writer, and she writes outside because she writes outside my worldview, um, and she's so good and so uh, so good with the language and so good with the the form of things, but has really really good ideas as well. You know, I find her very stimulating to read. Caitlin Flanagan. And Susanna, quickly. Uh, quickly. Um a new book that's about to come out, a new collection of essays called Headlands, uh, uh, Stories of Anxiety, essays, commissioned essays on anxiety, fantastic, which, I've just, which will, you'll see in unity in about a month's time, I think. Great. And I just recommend a new website called The Three Lamps, thethreelamps.com, uh, which we're using to showcase work by University of Auckland students. There's one essay on it, because we have creative nonfiction on, 
by a young writer called Melanie Quang writing about growing up Chinese in Christchurch that's really a fantastic essay. And I asked her if her parents minded, and she said it was okay because they didn't really read English. So um, <laughs> I really encourage you to go there. Please join me in thanking Shamobul Yacoub, Simon Wilson, and Susanna Andrew. And thank you, too, to Paula Morris as both participant and chair. You did a great job. Thank you. And if I could recommend um, some writing to you, um, I would recommend that you check out the Journal of Urgent Writing and uh, False River and uh, Shamabeel's essays with Bridget Williams Press and Tell You What. So they're all for sale at Unity Books. And in the break, which will be following the next session, all of those books are for sale. So thank you very much. Uh, and we are moving on to our next session now. So Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.